please standing for the reading of God's word. From Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. Will you pray with me? Father, in pouring out your spirit upon us, you regenerated our hearts, bringing life to that which was dead. You gave us new desires, new purposes, and new ability to live in your glory. So as the sun warms the ground after winter to bring forth life, so do you warming our hearts to bring new and beautiful things to reality. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your word would do in our hearts today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, uh, I had asked our team to, to help me out. And one of the ways that I had asked Daniel uh, Hickenbotham and his team to help me out is that uh, I wanted to put a cross on the outside of that wall that was the first thing you see as you walk in the door. And I wanted to do that for two reasons. First of all, because I wanted to be the first thing in the field of our vision as we came into worship Jesus, who was crucified on a cross in the first century. The other reason I wanted to do that is because we discuss this and we just love the symbolism of the congregation. As you walk in the door, you walk under the cross. You come under its authority and under its power. And so that is the reason why we moved that cross back there. The other reason that I did that is because I had asked the team for a cross in the room that was on the side and not in the back. And the reason I, I did that is because I often gesture to the cross in my preaching and it's really hard for me to do that, but turning, I would watch the videos and it would just drive me crazy that I was so often turning my back on the congregation and I did not want to do that anymore. And then I told Daniel, I said, Daniel, I want a cross that looks like a first century Jew could have been crucified on it. And that's what he gave me. We're not done with it yet. You're gonna love it when we are, but let me tell you, those are the reasons why we have done these things. And so if you have any questions about any of that or anything that we have done in the room, please, please, Send your emails to DennisMacheski at gmail.com. <laughs> He's not here today, so <laughs> we're going to jump in the passage. I love that passage in Joel chapter 2. Remember in the book of Acts where that passage was quoted, Acts chapter 2. And it's the passage that Peter says on the day of Pentecost. This is the fulfillment of that. This, what you see and what you hear, is that. This is what was prophesied, that God is going to pour out in the last days. He is going to pour out his spirit on everyone, on all flesh, humanity. And your sons and daughters, they will prophesy. Young men, they will see visions. And old men will dream dreams. For decades, a well-documented miracle or phenomenon has been occurring in the Muslim world. Actually, it's also been occurring among Jews. And it's also been occurring among those in Central and, Latin, uh, and South America. And that is that people have been experiencing dreams of Jesus. People who live in cultures where they have not heard the gospel, where the gospel has not been plentiful, and the church presence is not very strong, these folks have been seeing visions or uh, receiving dreams at night while they sleep of Jesus. And part of the dream has been to say, uh, I am Jesus 
and I'm bringing you into my family. I want you to trust in me. I want you to believe in me. Usually after that, they meet a Christian. And the Christian will share a New Testament in their indigenous language with them. They will read it and get saved. Or they will sit and share the gospel with these folks, and these folks will become Christians. And I want to tell you, folks, it would be one thing. We could discount that. We could discount that if it was just one isolated culture in one isolated place, right? But seeing as how it is so ubiquitous, it is so across the board in the Muslim world, in the Jewish world, in Latin America, it is frankly, I think, undeniable. Now let me give a caveat here. Not every dream and vision of Jesus is true. Some are false. Some Jesuses are false Jesuses. In fact, Jesus predicted this in Matthew 24, in Luke 21. Jesus said that in the last days, here's what's going to happen. False Christs are going to appear. False Christs are going to come to you and uh, tempt even the elect if that were possible. And so I personally have listened to or watched, I think, about 30 of these stories. I think uh, between 20 and 30 for sure. I think I've collected about 80, like on my YouTube channel. I just have them sitting there, and I've watched parts of most of them. And I can tell you that most of the people who have these stories will say that they are Christians today. They are followers of Jesus. And the fruit of this, receiving this dream or receiving this vision from the Lord, is that they are now believers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, right? Amen. But as I looked around uh, the internet for these kinds of stories... I also found that there is, a, there is a wing of the fundamentalist, I would call it the fundamentalist wing of the Christian faith that has tried to discount these stories. And these people are famous preachers. And they have stood up and given messages or uh, published things in order to say these things are not happening. These are false Christians. These are false believers and false dreams of Jesus. And they usually base them on a couple of things. And I'm bringing this up because it's relevant to our passage today. What about Hebrews 1? Doesn't Hebrews chapter 1 say that God has already revealed everything about Jesus in the Bible? Not dreams and visions. Hebrews 1 does not say that. Hebrews 1 says in the past, our forefathers, the prophets, uh, they, God revealed himself in a variety of ways. But now, God has, in finality, revealed himself in the person and the life of Jesus, his son. Now, what that passage does not say is that the son who was revealed to us in the first century and in whom the scriptures tell us about, the New Testament tells us about, is no longer revealing himself through the mode of dreams and visions. It doesn't say that. It doesn't limit that. So, I, frankly, I don't know where these people are getting that. But there's a, a second objection to this, and that, that is, doesn't Paul say that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word? When the gospel is preached, yes, he does. Yes, he does say that in the book of Romans. And he's right. A person cannot get saved apart from the gospel of Jesus. A person cannot get saved apart from knowing and hearing the gospel being proclaimed to them. So how are they getting saved because they saw Jesus in a dream? Well, I want to point this out to you, especially in the Muslim world. They know a lot about Jesus. They know plenty about Jesus. Did you know that the Quran in particular has 90 passages? It speaks of Jesus 90 times over 15 different chapters. 
And here's what it tells us about Jesus, or here's here's what the Quran tells Muslims about Jesus. He was born of a virgin Mary, and that he lived a miraculous, sinless life. And that when he returns at the end of time, he's going to judge the Antichrist and all the Antichrist followers. It's not bad, not a bad start. But then it denies three things about Jesus, undeniably. I mean, this is what it denies. It denies that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, The Quran also denies that Jesus died on a cross, especially for your sins. And it denies that he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Well, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. That's enough of the gospel in the denial of the gospel so that you would know it. So these people are hearing it in its denials. And they know enough about Jesus so that when God reveals to them through dreams that Jesus is revealing himself and he is calling them to faith, folks, I think that's real. Don't you? I hope you do. Now, why bring all that up today? Because God started doing this in Acts chapter 10. (laughs) This is the passage that we're looking at today where God starts to do this with the Gentile world. And so today we're going to meet a man named Cornelius. And what we're witnessing is this continuing phenomenon that God reveals himself to the Gentiles who are seeking him, who are seeking to know more about him. And so so today we're going to look at a Roman centurion who has a vision which paralleled the message that God had delivered Peter. So this is another tandem vision. This is a parallel vision in which, in chapter 9, Saul gets a vision, right, of Jesus. Jesus appears to Saul, and then he appears to Ananias to confirm, in fact, that it was him. In this chapter, uh, an angel appears to a man named Cornelius, and then uh, God reveals to Peter that, uh, uh, what he is going to actually teach Cornelius and do. So it's another pairing or paired vision. So let's talk about Cornelius. First of all, Cornelius is a devout man without the gospel. Cornelius is a devout man without the gospel. Well, he has God's attention, but that doesn't mean he has God's salvation. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this, There was a man uh, in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Let's break that down. We're going to take a little bit of time this week to kind of unpack who this man was historically. I'm going to give you a little bit more historical information. I I typically do not like to do that in sermons, but I'm going to give you a little historical information today uh, more than I normally would, right? Uh, Some of you are looking at me like, what? I thought that was your thing. Um, No. (laughs) I hold back a lot. You have no idea. Okay, where is Caesarea? What was Caesarea? Well, this is referring to Caesarea by the sea. And Luke mentions Caesarea about 15 times in the book of Acts. Uh, It's a really important town. Uh, Caesarea by the sea was a beautiful Palestinian city. It was was supposed to be a Jewish city named in honor of Caesar. Philip had already gone before Peter and preached there, as we learned a few chapters ago, uh, which paved the way for a Gentile revival. And though it is technically a Jewish town, it was overrun by Greeks and particularly Romans who did not like the Jews at all. They they were not very friendly to to the Jews. And so they had set up all kinds of statues to their pagan gods and their idols. Uh, Jews would have felt very uncomfortable there. Instead, a Jew would feel much more comfortable 35 miles south in a town called Jaffa. Both of them are right on the coast. 
They're beach towns, both of them. And then Jews and Syrians <clears throat> both lived there, and uh, they were constantly at war. They were constantly at each other's throats. And the Syrians claimed the town for themselves, and the Jews claimed the town as their historical sort of uh, uh, heritage, in their heritage in, in Abraham and Moses. And so they were constantly at war. And whenever fights broke out among the Syrians and the Jews over whose town Caesarea was, um, the Romans always sided with the Syrians. In particular because they really, really disdained the Jewish view of one God, monotheism. They really disdained that view. In fact, the Romans referred to that as atheism. What about Cornelius, the centurion? It says he was the centurion over the Italian cohort. This particular cohort we know from history, extra-biblical history, was a regiment of archers. And they were stationed in Caesarea. Centurions had authority over between 100 to, uh, 80 to 100 men. So they were very, very well-respected. And as far as we know, centurions had a lot of authority. When a centurion ordered a person, it didn't just have to be someone in their regiment. It could be anyone in the town to do something. They did it. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 7? I think it's Matthew chapter 8. Well, the centurion sends word to Jesus that he has a sick slave or servant that he considers his child. And he sends word to Jesus to say to Jesus, would you come and heal my child? And his response to Jesus is basically this. I'm a centurion. I tell this one to go, and he better go. I tell this one to come hither, and he better come hither. <laughs> you know. So what is he saying? I'm a centurion. This is what I do. What he's also saying by implication is, I command men, but you command disease. You command the darkness to flee. And so it is a very high statement of faith in Jesus. And Jesus just says, whoa, I have not seen greater faith than this in all of Israel. And so this is what centurions are. They run the show. There are people with a very high authority. And based, based on what we know of history in this region, Cornelius is possibly, and I want to say probably, a retired soldier. He's probably native to this area. What would happen is, after many years of being conscripted into service, uh, a person would be guaranteed a retirement date, and if they serve faithfully, they could retire. And then they would typically go back to their place of origin. They would typically go back to the place where their, their entire family lived. So uh, soldiers who were active, actively stationed in a hot zone typically did not bring their family. And what we read in this story is that his entire extended household is here. So this means this is likely the place of his origin, actually. He likely had settled here before he was conscripted into the Roman army. So what do we know that distinguishes Cornelius from other Romans and Gentiles in this area? Well, Cornelius' devotion. It notes his devotion. He responded to the light of revelation that he had. He did not have the gospel yet. He did not have all of God's truth. But he responded to what he knew. And the Bible holds him in high esteem because of this. In terms of his devotion, that word devoted just means consecrated. It means loyal. And I looked this word up, and I could not find any, um, I could not find any instances or occurrences of the word in literature, in ancient literature, where it did not also mean publicly loyal. 
It, it is an act of public loyalty, public loyalty and public piety. It's consecration toward a deity, something you are publicly saying, I believe in this. Devotion in the ancient world was a public, not merely a private matter. It was a public, not merely a private matter. This is why you got baptized. You got baptized because you were publicly devoting yourself or consecrating yourself to Jesus the Messiah. Um, this is why you take communion. We'll take communion a little bit later, but this is why when the church gathers publicly, you take communion publicly. You are saying, my devotion is to the Lord, and you are saying that with the body and to the body. Pastor Mark Deaver has said, your Christian faith is always personal, but it's never private. Your Christian faith is always personal. He's right, but it's never a private matter. It's not just me and my personal private faith that no one ever sees. Nope, it's personal because if you don't have a personal faith, you do not have Christ, but it's always public. It's public because we live out our faith in the public square. So God has called us to both announce our faith through baptism as we live out our faith in community, not as a secret Christian thing, but as a public affirmation, an embracing of the cross of Jesus and all that it means. And we embrace the cross as the defining orientation of our lives, both its comforts and its costs, its riches and its horrors. And then it talks about his fear of God. Well, we learned last week from Pastor Ryan, who did an excellent job, that fear of God is awesome wonder. Fear of God, remember that message, is a sense of just wonder, reverence, high reverence for God because he is almighty God. Godly fear, in a sense, is a sense of holy panic that we serve before an all-powerful God. Yes and amen. Ryan was right. And all I would add to that is to say that the fear of God is to experience God's glory with trembling pleasure. Have you ever experienced something with trembling pleasure? Have you ever stood before a waterfall and experienced the awesome power of that waterfall? So in a sense, it, but, but also the pleasure, the rapture of the moment. This is how we come to God. You and I stand before an almighty God, and we experience the joy, the thrill of his glory. You and I experience the thrill of the glory of God, but he is God almighty. He's not my little buddy. He's not the Pillsbury Doughboy. I don't like touch his stomach, and he goes, hee-hee, right? He's not a genie. I don't take him out of a lamp and rub the lamp whenever I need something. He's the almighty God of the universe, and we serve at his pleasure. And so this man, Cornelius, fears the Lord. He has an appropriate fear of God, and one of the ways he shows that is he disciples his household. It doesn't just say that Cornelius feared the Lord, but it was Cornelius and his house. Cornelius and his household. I want to show you how important it is in Scripture for a person and their household to get saved. The church met in a variety of venues. So the church would meet in lecture halls, like the, the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. They would meet in the Jewish temple. They would meet in uh, Roman or Greek theaters. They would meet wherever they could, wherever they could gather. Why? Because they didn't have church buildings. They did not have these things. Uh, so they met wherever they could, but they mainly, mainly took root in a culture in a house and usually in a family and the extended family network and 
other families that they would bring into that house. Now, Luke and Paul often emphasize households as the foundation of the church in a given area. So you can find this throughout the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Timothy. So why is this idea of the gospel taking hold in a household, why is that so important? Well, it was important for a couple of practical reasons. The first practical reason is, is that as a household, you could meet as a koinonia. What is a koinonia? What is that? That is the Greek word for fellowship. So oftentimes you'll find uh, the word fellowship It's translated in your New Testament as fellowship, and it's the translation of this word koinonia. And in the first century, you could meet as a koinonia. You could meet as what's called a voluntary association. So you could have a burial association. If you were part of a military guild, you could meet as a military koinonia. Uh, You could have a business koinonia. Business guys could get together and form, form one of these fellowships. Uh, or you could have a philo- ph- philosophical koinonia where a bunch of philosophers get together and plan their debates and plan their speeches. So there were all kinds of these voluntary fellowships that you could join. Why was that important? Because it was against Roman law to persecute a koinonia. It was against Roman law. And so the reason, one of the practical reasons why you see the, the church just taking root and taking hold in households is because they formed a koinonia a gospel koinonia. And uh, the other reason why they did it is because of this idea of the Father. This idea of the Father. Uh, This is what is called a patrilineal kinship model of family. You and I live in a a, a model of modern families that uh, they did not understand. They would not have understood the kinds of nuclear families that we have today. What they lived is they lived in a patrilineal kinship model, and in a patrilineal kinship model, the father was essentially the god of the home. And what the father said, that's what goes. And so whatever the father does is that's what you're going to do. How many of you, by the way, by the way, are doing what your father did as a trade? Almost pretty much know what a couple people in the room. Uh, If I had become a welder, I would have followed my father uh, in terms of his trade. But almost no one in America does this anymore, unless you inherit a business. Uh, But in the ancient world, it was exactly the reverse. Almost everyone did what their father did. And so the father determines the direction. He determines your passions. He determines your religion. If the father gets saved, if Cornelius gets saved, obviously the whole household is going to follow Jesus because that's the direction the father is going. So this is just the kind of world that they live in, and I think God takes full advantage of this. And this is why you often see both in Acts and uh, the rest of the New Testament, you'll see the prominent men coming to faith in Jesus because they lead the rest of their households and their community to faith as well. Before my dad died, um, he had a tremendous amount of influence on me and my brother and my mother, and just the general direction of our family. I can tell you that for sure. And I remember just a few months, probably maybe four months before he passed away in a car accident, I just remember him coming to church with mom, and he came under the conviction of the gospel. I remember him in his uh, polyester brown suit and a burnt orange tie, and I remember getting out to the car, after the church service, and he had sweated through his suit. 
because the conviction of the gospel had gotten a hold of him, and he confessed his sins and embraced Jesus in his cross, and the next week, instead of walking around the house cursing and smoking cigarettes and uh, telling the rest of us he didn't want to go to church, he was waking us all up at 7 a.m. to get dressed for church. And I tell you, from that moment to the day he died, I saw a transformation in my dad. It was awesome. And I have often thought about it and thought, wouldn't it have been great if that happened when I was like three? That would be great, because I would have had a much better life. Like, dad's, dad determined the direction of our family to, to a great degree. And God knew what he was doing. And I'm glad God did it exactly the way God wanted to do it. But listen, the greatest crisis that American culture faces today, it, it, it's, listen, folks, it's not liberalism. It's not your progressive friend at work who doesn't believe the way you do about political matters. The greatest crisis we have in American culture today is fathers who don't love Jesus. It's men who aren't passionate about Jesus Christ. And and God help us if we lose the men. I kind of feel like we already have in our culture, don't you? And this is why God is calling men to lead the home. Lead your home. Lead your children in faith. We must lead our families to Jesus. Can you imagine if every man, if every husband, if every dad in this country were to turn to faith in Jesus and begin to serve him faithfully? Can you imagine how that would transform our culture? It would be heaven on earth. So goes the man, so goes the family. I'm telling you that. So, folks, we have got to pray. Let's pray. Let's ask God for a revival among the men in America and in our world. But this man, Cornelius, he comes under the conviction of the Spirit, and later we'll learn next week he gets saved, and it's not just him, it's his entire household. But right now he fears God. He's responding to the light of revelation he has access to, and so is his house. But also his generosity and prayer and finances. It says he did many charitable deeds toward the Jews. He was generous toward the people of God, God's holy family on earth. This means he isn't a proselyte. A proselyte is a person who gets circumcised and begins to eat kosher and begins to observe all the Jewish festivals according to their calendar. Well, he likely isn't. He's not a proselyte or a convert to Judaism, but he has converted to their belief system about God. So he believes in the same God they do. And he generously gives to support this persecuted people group in Caesarea. Uh, As a teenager, I was asked by the Foreign Mission Board uh, at my church, a very large church in Richmond, Virginia, And my youth pastor came to me one day and said, hey, the missions team wants to send you on their next missions trip, and uh, they want to pay your way. And I was like, great. And my mentality at the time was just, yeah, I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to be healing people and raising the dead and, (laughs) you know, calling sinners to repentance. I mean, I was radical. I was on fire. And I was like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And I go over there. And uh, it, that trip was really not much about me ministering to them at all, as, at least from my perspective. It was about them ministering to me. Because I would go uh, to a culture where they didn't have a church building. They, they literally didn't have a church building. One town would not have a church building, and they just had a bunch of shanty houses. And they would just try to break up into groups in those little homes. 
Uh, we went to one town where we had helped them build a little cinder block church building, but it wasn't like this. It just had dirty floors and a thatch roof, no sound system, nothing like what we have here. And they were so full of joy, and they were so full of the Holy Spirit, and they were so welcoming, and their worship times were just off the hook. <laughs> like it was, they were so full of the celebratory praise for what God had done in them. And folks, they didn't have a tenth of what you and I have. They didn't have a tenth of what you and I have. I later found out that uh, a wealthy benefactor, a guy who owned a chain of jewelry stores in our church, uh, wanted to pay my way. And he didn't want anyone to know, but I found out it was him. And he paid my way to three such missions trips. And I can tell you, when I came back from those short-term mission trips, I had a different perspective of the world. It changed my trajectory forever. It helped me to see the world from God's perspective. The world is a mission field, and it's ripe for harvest, and we are to go there and preach the gospel of Jesus. I was also so thankful. My perspective of my church changed, too. I began to see that church not as some big, rich church with a building. I began to see that congregation as the most generous congregation on the planet Earth. I'll be honest with you, that's how I see Christ Community Church. When I look at how much you guys give for missions and outreach and all that you do here, I, it blows me away. This is probably the most generous church I have ever been a part of. And that is a blessing to me. And so what this man is doing is he is demonstrating the generosity of a God-fearer. He, was, he is showing us how it's done. He is saying he is taking part of his resources and what he has, and he is being generous toward the people of God. You see, never underestimate the power of one generous act. Never underestimate the power of one generous act, sending one kid to camp or, or, or sending a check to a missionary and supporting them. Never underestimate the power of your generosity, and especially a life of generosity, not just one act, but a life characterized by that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for stepping up. But he also prayed to God. This signifies that he was a convert to the Jewish belief system. He believed in the Jews' God. He was likely not an ethnic Jew. And another reason he is likely retired here, we think, is because as an active duty serviceman, Cornelius would have had to worship Caesar. Uh, the Romans practiced what is called the imperial cult. And in the imperial cult... The doctrine of the imperial cult is that Caesar is the son of God. That was his title, minted on the coins. Caesar is the son of God who is Lord and Savior. And so here is Cornelius who is about to meet the true son of God who is the Lord and the Savior. And so for him to be a God-fearer, it is likely that he is retired. Why? Because he doesn't have to practice the imperial cult anymore. He doesn't have to bow the knee to Caesar anymore the way he used to as a Roman soldier. Now he worships the God of the Jews, and he worships openly, and he worships freely. And so he often prayed to God. Now next week we're going to find out this is exactly how he gets himself into trouble here, because he's praying at about three in the afternoon, and an angel appears to him to lead him to Peter, who will preach to him the gospel. Now God had already revealed himself to a non-Jew. Who's the first non-Jew that God had revealed himself to? Uh, Abraham. Or, well, Noah, but Abraham too. 
Abraham was not a Jew. And God's plan all along was to take this man, Abraham, from this one man, create one nation. And from this nation, to bring forth one man, the Messiah. And from that one man, to bring a new humanity made up of Jew and Gentile, born again in Christ. That was God's plan from the beginning. Now, Peter and the Jews in Jerusalem, they don't know this is the plan yet. I mean, I don't know how they don't know, but so far, it's just a Jewish thing and a Samaritan thing, but God has to show them this is the plan. This has been the plan all along. I want all the nations and the ethnicities of the world to come into the family. And so the encounter is important. It's just as important as God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. It is that kind of sea change in religious faith. And so we have lived for 2,000 years, folks, in what both Jesus in Luke 21 and Paul in Romans 11 refer to as the times of the Gentiles. What are the times of the Gentiles? Well, in those contexts, the context is, uh, the, well, the times of the Gentiles are going to be up. <laughs> we don't typically think, think that way, do we? We don't think about our time being up. In Romans 11 in particular, Paul says this, right now a partial hardening has come to my countrymen, to the Jews, so that Here's, here's the reason. So that God can turn his affections and his energy and his efforts and his attention to the Gentile nations and bring as many of them in as possible before the time of the Gentiles are up, right? So someday the time is going to be up for us to reach the world. And we have been living in a time of the Gentiles since Acts chapter 10. Since the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius' family, we have been reaching out further and further into the world. But have you noticed that more and more Jews are coming to the faith? Have you noticed that more and more Muslims, Semitic peoples, are coming to the faith? Those are the people the gospel was offered to first. The gospel was offered to the Jews, and it was also offered to the Arabs. Paul spent 15 years in Arabia before he went to Rome. And now the gospel has come full circle back to these peoples, and God is awakening. There's a revival going on among them, and folks, we need to pray for these, for these people. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? Let's make some commitments this morning before we take communion. Father in heaven, we of all people should be living out our faith in a personal way, but also a public way. God, would you help us to do that? God, would you open doors for us to have conversations with people and lead and point those conversations in the direction of Jesus and his grace for the people he died for? Will you help us to do that? And God, we of all people should live with a panicked wonder, just thrilled at the glory of your presence, a holy, righteous fear of God. And may we walk humbly before you, Lord, God, may we walk humbly before you as we enjoy your presence and as we live in the fear of the Lord. And God, we of all people should have men who lead their households to faith and lead them in the faith. God, give men courage to step up and commit their lives to you and lead their wives and lead their children and lead their communities, Lord. Would you give us the courage and the boldness to lead well? God, we should be known as the people who are the most generous people on earth. 
as opportunities come our way to express the generosity of the gospel of Jesus, Lord, may we seize those moments, those opportunities to further your salvation plan in our world. God, would you help us do that? Help us to be people like Cornelius, who was a man, devout, feared the Lord, but he didn't even have the gospel yet. And he teaches us today. In Jesus' name, amen.